Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is The Pills Won't Help You Now, where we discuss perioperative corticosteroid management in patients with adrenal insufficiency. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So as nerdy as this is going to sound, this is actually a pretty exciting topic for us in (laughs) anaesthesia. You're right, that does sound nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) Super nerdy. In May 2020, the Association of Anaesthetists, the Royal College of Physicians and the Society for Endocrinology UK published a set of guidelines in the journal Anaesthesia governing the management of glucocorticoids during the perioperative period for patients with adrenal insufficiency. Now, the reason that this is so momentous is that this is the first set of formal guidelines to be published that assists us in the management of corticosteroid dosing perioperatively for patients with primary, secondary and tertiary adrenal insufficiency. And I do actually find this good because it's always been a bit like, oh, just give 100 of hydrocort yeah, when you don't so know what true. else is going on. So oh, mm. That's so true. Gone are the days where for patients taking between 5 and 10 milligrams of oral prednisolone, we would be hunting through steroid conversion mm-hmm. tables similar to those we'd studied for the primary exam. And I won't lie, I'm so glad those days are gone. Me too. So everything we discussed today will be from these new guidelines and if you'd like to read the article yourselves, please see the link in our episode notes. Remember too that though it's fantastic that there are formal guidelines to assist our practice, you should consider consulting with an endocrinologist prior to deciding upon a particular replacement strategy. Now before we dive into the guidelines, let's take a moment to briefly review some relevant physiology to help us understand the topic a little better. Cortisol, the dominant glucocorticoid in humans, is produced in the zona fasciculata of the adrenal cortex. Its production and release is controlled by the hypothalamo-pituitary-adrenal axis, where cortisol release is stimulated by the release of adrenocorticotrophic hormone, or ACTH, by the anterior pituitary gland, which is in turn controlled by the release of corticotrophin-releasing hormone, or CRH, by the hypothalamus. The cyclical release of these hormones is circadian in nature, with higher cortisol levels mid-morning when the sun is up and lower levels at midnight. Though up to 20 milligrams of cortisol is released normally every day, things change significantly when we undergo major surgery. Following uncomplicated surgery, a proportionate increase in serum levels of CRH, ACTH and cortisol are seen, as well as an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines. A five-fold increase in cortisol secretion to about 100 milligrams a day occurs, which then returns to baseline within 24 to 48 hours post-surgery. It's important to remember that surgical stress is not an all-or-nothing phenomenon. Patient, anaesthetic and surgical factors are all important in determining the level of stress associated with a surgical procedure. 
Now, when we say primary adrenal insufficiency, we are referring to patients where the underlying etiology relates to a pathological process which is occurring within the adrenal gland itself. This includes conditions like Addison's disease, which is an autoimmune adrenal insufficiency, or congenital adrenal hyperplasia. These patients are frequently deficient in the production of both cortisol and aldosterone. Conversely, patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency are those whose adrenal insufficiency is a result of disorders of the hypothalamus or anterior pituitary gland. These patients are cortisol deficient but continue to secrete aldosterone in response to renin. Secondary adrenal suppression, sometimes referred to as tertiary adrenal insufficiency, refers to adult patients taking daily doses of prednisolone 5 mg or greater for over one month, or in children taking 10 to 15 mg per metre squared of hydrocortisone equivalent or greater for one month or more by the oral, inhaled, intranasal, intraarticular or topical routes. These patients experience suppression of the hypothalamo-pituitary-adrenal axis as a result of steroid administration for many other medical conditions. And interestingly, the authors note that inhaled corticosteroid therapy is incredibly common and that recent evidence has shown that these patients commonly get suppression of the normal response of the adrenal glands to ACTH. Now, the reason that this is so important is that all patients that are steroid-dependent are at risk of adrenal crisis. Yeah, so I think that's interesting because I wouldn't traditionally have thought the patients on what I would consider to be a low dose of prednisone mm. could actually you know, be steroid dependent to that point where they could you know, potentially get an adrenal crisis. Yeah, so, or inhaled yes. steroids. I mean, how yeah. many patients do we see that are on inhaled, inhaled steroids? And previously, I, it never occurred to me to look for an adrenal crisis in mm. these guys. Yeah. So let's get on to the guidelines. The guidelines from the Association of Anaesthetists, the Royal College of Physicians and the Society for Endocrinology UK consist of eight recommendations. Firstly, prescribed glucocorticoid therapy, defined as prednisolone over or equal to 5 milligrams per day in adults or hydrocortisone equivalent dose of 10 to 15 milligrams per meter squared per day in children across all routes of administration, including oral, inhaled, topical, intranasal and intraarticular, can cause suppression of the hypothalamo-pituitary-adrenal axis and is the most common cause of adrenal insufficiency that anaesthetists will encounter. Guideline two is that all glucocorticoid-dependent patients are at risk of adrenal crisis as a consequence of surgical stress or illness, and it is essential to be able to recognise and diagnose this medical emergency. If in doubt about the need for glucocorticoids, they should be given as there are no long-term adverse consequences of short-term glucocorticoid administration. Now let's just pause here to reiterate that this is a significant deviation from the previous grey area recommendations where for adult patients taking between 5 and 10 milligrams of prednisolone equivalent per day, there was no real advice. Your options were to either stress dose the patient or to wait and see whether they had ongoing issues with hypotension intraoperatively. And even with stress dosing, there was a lot of variation in what constituted stress dose steroids, whether it was 50 or 100 milligrams of IV hydrocortisone, and for how long after the procedure you should administer the increased dose of cortisol. If your patient was lucky enough to be managed by an endocrinologist, you could always call for advice, but even then, there were and are many patients who are on significant doses of steroids that are being managed primarily by their GPs without any endocrinology input. And as great as the GPs are at managing steroid dosing, understandably, most of them are just not up to speed with stress dosing in the setting of elective or emergency surgery. The author's decision behind recommendations one and two, specifically to administer stress dose steroids to this population, is based on a few salient points. 
Firstly, the evidence shows that there is a proportion of patients taking as little as 5 milligrams of prednisolone equivalent daily who have significant adrenal suppression. A case series of patients receiving between 5 and 20 milligrams of prednisolone daily and who underwent a short synactin test showed that a variable number of patients, between a third and a half, were not achieving the target serum cortisol concentration when exogenous steroids were administered. Now, it's worth noting that a precise dose-response relationship couldn't be established, but that patients taking as little as 5 milligrams of prednisolone or a standard dose of inhaled steroids can be associated with inadequate adrenal cortisol reserves in significant patient numbers. Secondly, when balancing the risks in these patients, the authors decided that the risk of inadequate glucocorticoid coverage perioperatively and the associated morbidity and mortality supported glucocorticoid supplementation, with the caveat that a number of factors need to be considered when deciding upon the most appropriate dosing regimen. These include steroid dose, duration, condition for which supplemental steroids are being administered, and the degree of physiological stress. Recommendation three is that patients with a long-standing diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency are often well-informed about their disease. Anaesthetists should inquire closely about the patient's history of glucocorticoid self-management, any previous episodes of adrenal crisis, and how practiced they are at medication adjustments for illness, injury, or post-operative recovery. Best practice is to collaborate as far as possible with the patient's endocrinologist when planning scheduled surgery and when caring for post-operative patients. Recommendation four is that hydrocortisone 100 milligrams by intravenous injection should be given at the induction of anesthesia in adult patients with adrenal insufficiency from any cause, followed by a continuous infusion of hydrocortisone 200 milligrams over 24 hours until the patient can take double their usual oral glucocorticoid dose by mouth. This regimen is preferred above others due to enhanced safety. This should then be tapered back to the appropriate maintenance dose, in most cases within 48 hours, although for up to a week if surgery is more major or complicated. Clinical judgment should be used to guide this. Intramuscular administration may be prescribed in circumstances where IV infusion therapy is impractical. So look again, I just want to pause here because within these guidelines, there are three tables that summarise the dosing recommendations for these patients really succinctly and really well. Table 1 addresses perioperative corticosteroid management for patients with either primary or secondary adrenal insufficiency, and Table 2 looks at perioperative corticosteroid management for patients receiving immunosuppressive doses of steroids, where this is defined as prednisolone greater than or equal to 5 milligrams daily for four weeks or longer. Now, for adults, the recommendations are different for base surgery, surgery requiring bowel prep, caesarean sections, and the labouring parturient. Table 3 focuses specifically on the perioperative management of children with either primary or secondary adrenal insufficiency. You can find these tables on pages 657 through to 658 of the article. Recommendation 5 is that major complications and critical illness excite a prolonged stress response. Any glucocorticoid supplementation should reflect this pattern. Recommendation 6 Dexamethasone is not adequate as glucocorticoid treatment in patients with primary adrenal insufficiency as it has no mineralocorticoid activity. Recommendation 7. Children with adrenal insufficiency are more vulnerable to problems with glycemic control than adults and require frequent blood glucose monitoring. 
They can be treated with a bolus of hydrocortisone at induction of anesthesia, followed by an immediate continuous infusion of hydrocortisone, or alternatively, with a bolus at induction, followed by subsequent four-hourly IV boluses of hydrocortisone in the post-operative period. Detailed recommendations based on age and body weight are presented in the main text. The period of fasting should be minimised and adrenal insufficient patients should be prioritised on routine surgical operating lists. Another brief pause here while we talk through the dosing of hydrocortisone in the paediatric population. As we said earlier, Table 3 in the guidelines addresses steroid dosing for paediatric patients with adrenal insufficiency. For major surgery, hydrocortisone 20 mg per kilo IM or IV should be administered at induction, followed immediately by an intravenous infusion based on the child's weight. For children up to 10 kilos, the recommended dose is 25 mg over 24 hours. For children between 11 and 20 kilos, the dose is 50 mg over 24 hours. For prepubertal children over 20 kilos, the dose is 100 mg over 24 hours. And for pubertal children over 20 kilograms, this dose is greater at 150 milligrams over 24 hours. Postoperative dosing is the same as for the continuous intraoperative infusions. However, intermittent dosing of 2 milligrams per kilo, either IM or IV, and on a four-hourly basis is also considered appropriate. The authors do mention some other specifics for implementation when managing these children perioperatively. Both adults and children with adrenal insufficiency tolerate fasting poorly and should be first on the operating list to minimise fasting times. If preoperative fasting exceeds four hours, hourly BSL checks should be commenced and continued postoperatively until enteral intake is re-established. Particular care should be taken with children who have secondary adrenal insufficiency and diabetes insipidus as cortisol is required to excrete a water load. These children who receive treatment with vasopressin are at risk of water intoxication if they do not receive extra doses of hydrocortisone perioperatively, thus ensuring adequate serum cortisol concentrations. These patients need strict fluid balance as well as cortisol replacement to ensure hyponatremia is avoided as this complication is associated with significant morbidity. And recommendation 8. Maternal glucocorticoid supplementation in obstetric patients with adrenal insufficiency represents another group who require a special mention. Women may require a higher maintenance dose during the later stages of pregnancy from the 20th week onwards. And stress dose supplementation is recommended using hydrocortisone 100 milligrams at the onset of labor, then either by continuous IV infusion of hydrocortisone 200 milligrams over 24 hours or 50 milligrams intramuscularly every six hours until delivery. Now, we both agree that these guidelines are incredibly straightforward and frankly easy to follow, which makes all of our lives a little easier. Absolutely. But there are a few more pertinent talking points that we should cover that are addressed by the authors and specifically relate to our anesthetic practice. Firstly, there are three main glucocorticoids that are used perioperatively, and these all have different potency, metabolic properties, and immunosuppressive effects. 10 milligrams of hydrocortisone is approximately equivalent to 2 milligrams of prednisolone and 0.1 milligrams of dexamethasone. All three drugs have excellent oral bioavailability and are rapidly absorbed. Keep in mind that we often administer up to 8 milligrams of dexamethasone at induction as a prophylactic for postoperative nausea and vomiting. And when you look at the dose equivalents, this roughly equates to 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone in the form of a long-acting glucocorticoid and is actually more than adequate to cover most situations for 24 hours. 
That said, it is important to remember that dexamethasone has no mineralocorticoid activity and thus is inadequate as glucocorticoid stress cover in patients who have primary adrenal insufficiency. Secondly, the plasma elimination half-life of exogenous hydrocortisone is 90 minutes, but this can significantly vary in a couple of patient subpopulations. The half-life may be shorter in patients taking drugs that induce the liver enzyme cytochrome P453A4, and examples of these are drugs like rifampicin, phenobarbital, phenytoin, and St. John's wort, or for patients suffering from hypothyroidism. There are some experts that believe that the dose of hydrocortisone administered to these patient groups as well as obese patients should be increased, but there is little evidence to support this other than case reports of perioperative adrenal crisis in these populations. The advice is thus to maintain a high index of suspicion of adrenal crisis in these groups and to be prepared to immediately increase the steroid dose if needed. As well as this, the advice is to preferentially commence a continuous infusion of hydrocortisone to reduce the risk of decompensation. It's also worth mentioning the elimination half-life may actually be prolonged in critically ill patients. Lastly, Atomidate, which is unavailable in Australia but is used in New Zealand and many other countries around the world, significantly suppresses cortisol production by inhibiting 11-beta-hydroxylase, the catalyst for the final step in cortisol biosynthesis. As there is inconclusive data and conflicting opinions surrounding whether it is necessary to administer perioperative stress dose steroids to patients who have received a single dose of Atomidate, as well as in vivo data suggesting that changes aren't clinically significant, the advice is that individual clinical judgment is required here. It is pertinent to know that adverse outcomes have been identified in patients receiving longer-term Atomidate infusions in critical care. Finally, we would be remiss in talking about perioperative corticosteroid management if we didn't discuss the clinical presentation of an adrenal crisis. This is true. Part of our job is to ensure that the perioperative corticosteroid dosing that we implement is actually working. Adrenal crises are actually more common than you might initially think. In the only prospective study to date, the incidence of adrenal crisis in a cohort of 423 patients with primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency was 8.3 per 100 replacement years, and two patients died during adrenal crisis during a two-year follow-up. Approximately half of the patients affected by adrenal crisis report a previous episode of adrenal crisis in their history, and these are often precipitated by gastroenteritis or fever, but can also be precipitated by surgical episodes, pregnancy, emotional distress, and a myriad of other triggers. Now, unfortunately for us, adrenal crisis often presents initially with a collection of quite vague and nonspecific symptoms, and having a high index of suspicion is extremely important. Some of these symptoms include anorexia, nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, weakness, fatigue, lethargy, fever, confusion, and coma. Though volume-resistant hypotension is considered the cardinal sign of an acute adrenergic crisis, this often presents late. The authors of the guidelines recommend vigilance for earlier symptoms and signs, and this includes keeping up a close watch for malaise, somnolence, or an altered level of consciousness, and potentially trialling a response to 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone if this occurs. Vital sign monitoring that should include sitting and supine BP to allow for early detection of orthostatic hypotension. Plasma sodium monitoring, it is often but not always low. CRP may be elevated, but this is of little value in the post-operative period. Persistent pyrexia may be due to adrenal insufficiency, but it is often attributed to post-operative sepsis and managed with antimicrobials. Steroid supplements should not be ceased or reduced in pyrexial patients. 
Now, I've got to say, talking about all of the symptoms that you see in adrenal crisis, it staggers me as to how similar a lot of these are to patients that have had routine Mm. abdominal surgery who aren't at risk of adrenal crisis. Mm. crisis. These symptoms are so nonspecific. And when you think about some of them like abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, Mm. lethargy, Mm. fever, I mean, we see these so often routinely. It's I can understand why it's so difficult to diagnose an adrenal crisis and why often it gets missed. Yeah, I completely agree. It reminds me of when we did an episode quite early on on the SGLT2 inhibitors and went through the symptoms and signs of DKA. And to me, it's the same thing. It's, you know, you could often ascribe these symptoms to other things in a post-operative patient. So it's really about having a degree of suspicion in someone that's taking steroids. Exactly. And I mean, when you think about the people monitoring these patients post-operatively, these interns and junior doctors who may not necessarily know what the symptoms of an adrenal crisis are and may not appreciate how common it is. So I think it's also our responsibility to communicate this with Mm. the surgical team when these patients are at risk of an adrenal crisis Mm. because it may not be, you know, at the forefront of what's important for them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, if you're caring for a patient and have concerns of an impending adrenal crisis, UpToDate recommends the following. Establish IV access with a large bore cannula. Take bloods for immediate serum electrolytes, blood glucose and plasma cortisol and ACTH, but do not delay treatment to allow for blood results. Bolus 2 to 3 litres of isotonic saline or 5% dextrose in isotonic saline rapidly. Frequent hemodynamic monitoring and measurement of serum electrolytes should be performed. Give hydrocortisone 100 milligrams intravenously followed by either 50 milligrams intravenously six hourly or a continuous infusion of 200 milligrams per 24 hours for the first 24 hours. If hydrocortisone is unavailable, give an alternative glucocorticoid like prednisolone, prednisone or dexamethasone and lastly supportive care is needed and it's probably worth mentioning that these are the resuscitation guidelines for adults. Obviously for children it will be different. Mm. So look, don't forget too, if the patient is hemodynamically unstable or you have other you know, serious concerns, press the emergency buzzer and get the help of the medical emergency team. Patients have died from an adrenal crisis, so it's important to take it very seriously. Well, look, that somehow brings us to the end of yet another episode. But before we sign off, Kate, what have you learned this week in anesthesia? So I think I've learnt or rather, again, just being reminded about concealed blood loss. Mm. Uh, so I had a patient who had had a flap on their leg and they were bleeding under the flap and that was the reason mm. to come back to theatre. And it was just incredible. Like when they took the dressing down before the patient was anaesthetised, it was just drip, drip, drip. Mm. Uh, we checked the patient's haemoglobin and funnily enough, they were a little anemic. Mm. Um, so look, it's just it's just a reminder. You never know what's hiding under dressings. Uh, it's important to assess a patient hemodynamically, check what the haemoglobin is, keeping in mind that uh, I felt this patient was probably a little hemoconcentrated because yeah. he was also dry and yeah. hadn't really been drinking and hadn't received a lot of IV fluid. So it's just the basics, but just remembering that, you know, you can always be lurking there ready to get you. Uh, and so I'm glad <laughs> that, you know, we checked the haemoglobin and made sure the patient was safe before we anesthetize them. Fair enough. Mm. Fair enough. What about you? What have you learned in anesthesia this week? Well, look, interestingly enough, what I've learned also has to do with vigilance, but in a slightly different form. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had a situation earlier this week where I had a near miss in terms of potentially having a drug error. Now, thankfully, because I'm a little bit on the obsessive side, but I also have systems in place to check and double check Mm. drugs and how I draw them up before I administer them. And one of the things I do is I like to keep all of my drug vials and have them displayed in Mm. front of me where I can see them 
so that a quick scan of the drug vials will confirm just the names and the doses of the drugs that I've drawn up. And it was during that process of a quick scan of the vials that I noticed that there was something that I didn't expect mm. um, some in a, a vial that looked very similar to what I thought I'd drawn up. And yeah. thankfully, I managed to identify the issue and correct it before the patient yeah. received any drugs. But it just goes to show that we are human. Humans are fallible. We do make mistakes. And I think it's important to have little fail safes and mm. things that you can do to try and reduce the risk of having these problems. Yep, 100%. Good reminder. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on what has been a serious but important topic. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you spread the word to follow us on your favourite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or have a topic that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.